from the LCPC side, so the, the dark side, the licensed clinical <laughs> professional counselor. But uh, along with that, I, and I'll kind of talk a little bit throughout the way I've obtained other credentials too as a certified alcohol and drug counselor, certified criminal justice addictions professional, and then uh, also uh, a certified court manager. So, you know, when we talk about kind of career path and leadership, I'll weave that into, you know, how I've kind of gone through these different stops in my career to be where I am today. So um, in doing so, I'll talk a little bit about uh, an anecdote from a story earlier in my career, which actually incorporates PADS, and it'll be evident, you know, while we're talking about how this has kind of been uh, a linear path for me that the story kind of follows along as well. So um, as stated, feel free to, you know, raise hand and ask questions. We keep this pretty, pretty low key and uh, informal. So thank you guys for having me. I also get to teach for Aurora University. I teach some graduate addictions classes. So um, I think the last one I did was about two years ago, but I'll do some online classes coming up. So it'll be an adventure. But uh, thank you again for having me. So I want to start with really just, you know, kind of turning the clock way back to when I started at uh, PADS, which was probably about 2002 when I was just coming out of school with a bachelor's degree at the time. It was one of my first jobs and I was an outreach homeless uh, case manager working with individuals that were uh, struggling with homelessness, both families, individuals, and as a case manager, you guys know your job is to work with uh, them and kind of plant the seeds for a better life and all that sort of stuff. So in my office walks uh, a guy that we'll call Anthony. He was a 30-year-old male at the time, um, in and out of homelessness, kind of living in his car, living in the church shelters and all that sort of stuff. And um, over this time, he also was able to obtain Social Security disability funding, and that was due to uh, diagnosis of bipolar disorder and he had psychotic features and um, you know that really impaired his judgment and ability kind of daily functioning skills and all those sort of things that you know come along with somebody that has that type of serious mental illness but he also did have some co-occurring substance use related issues he really uh, enjoyed stimulants because he felt like that really was something that made him more I'd say affable and more productive and that kind of stuff, which you'll see is pretty common with individuals. A lot of the time you'll see, you know, these co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. So, so in comes Anthony and we're, you know, walking through kind of the process of doing the intake, looking at what his plan would look like to get out of homelessness and didn't really seem to have a lot of interest in that. But some weeks went by and I found out that he decided he was going to kind of sow those seeds. So he came into our day center and he made not just a couple cups of coffee, but he made a few pots of coffee and he really kind of worked himself up into this pretty extreme manic state at the time. And then he proceeded to monopolize the phone that was in the day center and he called probably like 40 to 50 churches around the McHenry County and kind of Kane Lake County area. And, you know, explained like his plight of homelessness and how he wanted to get out of homelessness and he needed some money. and. Some weeks went by and checks started showing up at the PADS Day Center in the name of Anthony to go out and, you know, get a, a, a paid security deposit and a couple months rent and that kind of stuff. So since that wasn't typically what we did with the dollars, we kind of met with the directors and the team at the time and decided how we were going to do this. And we decided we'd honor the intent of the churches and say, all right, well, he did this and let's help him get out of homelessness and we'll help him get an apartment. So. 
you know, we do that, and as his case manager, that was kind of my role to do. So I helped him. We found an apartment, and you know, we went through all the paperwork and everything to uh, get him in there. Sorry, just a little warm in here. But uh, so when we did that, we decided that he needed some supplies. So you know, he had nothing. He was living in his car, uh, living in the shelter. So we went to Walmart, and this is really kind of where you'll see where some of my career path starts to you know, cross into this a little bit too, but in the Walmart, we're kind of walking around doing all the usual stuff, right? Getting some kitchen supplies, some of the other things that you would need, a lamp, this and that, and he decided he wanted to get a new pair of pants. So I said, okay, no problem. Go over by the men's section. I'll meet you over there in a couple minutes. And, you know, so I, a couple minutes went by, started grabbing just some of the other stuff that he needed. And then I walk around the corner and I see him literally like in, a like almost shoving match with Walmart security and an employee like in a fight where they're almost spitting and you know all the stuff that you can imagine and the kicker of all this is he's standing there and he's got no pants on <laughs> so I'm like you know a little case manager thinking what am I going to do here so luckily he's wearing boxers you know so he's at the time but so I go up and kind of intervene and de-escalate the situation and Turns out, I mean, he had no intent on stealing anything. He was manic completely and excited about moving into his apartment. So he was trying on pairs of pants and he decided no one was around. So he just tried them on right there in the middle of the men's section. So immediately you see how this could have ended up worse, right? If I wasn't there to de-escalate the situation, he could have got in, you know, more of a pushing match. There could have been a retail theft charge. Law enforcement could have got involved, all this stuff. So, you know, I kind of laugh now because we got out of there and, you know, but you can see that you know in my line of work I see people where this type of situation happens all the time. I mean when you look at the criminal justice system in general it's about 70% of individuals that have uh, any kind of criminal charge also have a mental health and or co-occurring substance use disorder and if you break that down even further to serious mental illness which is your you know kind of psychotic disorders schizophrenia schizoaffective and then bipolar disorder and uh, major depression there's about 20 percent of those individuals so that's compared to like five percent in the general population so there's this really high prevalence of these guys in the justice system which you know i know a guy that just spent a year bouncing back and forth between uh, dhs custody and the local jails for stealing a banana you know, so that was a retail theft charge. He was found unfit to stand trial, and that's what happened. So, you know, luckily none of this happened to Anthony at that time. We got out of there. So, you know, story goes on, and I say, you know, I laugh because we got out of that, but things definitely get much worse for him because then a couple weeks go by, we get him moved in, and anytime you would move someone out of that homelessness situation, you would kind of lose touch, right? They don't want to consider you, you know, somebody that they still want to lean on and come back and talk to and all that. They want to kind of forget about that and move on. So some time went by and I'd try to call and check in with them and maybe get a call back or a contact once in a while. But, you know, then probably three, four months went by and I get the dreaded call from the local jail, the collect call, Anthony's arrested, right? So he calls, to, he's got no one else to call. 
So it turns out that once he got into his apartment, he was there, but he also started using more substances. So he you know, started to use cocaine a little bit more frequently. And so he was really in a manic state and he was hallucinating and he thought his apartment complex was on fire. So he ran around his apartment complex, waking everybody up, telling them the building was on fire, uh, called 911 time after time after time again, law enforcement shows up. And they're able to kind of, you know, figure out that something's going on here. They de-escalate de him, kind of calm him down, send him back to his apartment, say, all right, you know, stay there the rest of the night, don't do any of this stuff anymore. So seemingly over, but then, you know, a couple hours later, he must have had a couple drinks or whatever happened, continuously hallucinating, went through kind of this whole process again, started calling 911, started running around the building. This time law enforcement comes back and they're pissed because why? Because they have to come back again and he didn't follow their directions and you know here they are. So this time though they decide to go into his apartment with him and not only you know are they getting him de-escalated but now they see there's a little bit of trace cocaine so they tell him he's going to be under arrest for possession of controlled substance and so what does he do? He gets all worked up and then resists arrest so he ends up getting arrested three felony charges. He gets a possession of controlled substance which is a felony for the cocaine. Gets a false reporting to 911, which is also uh, a felony, and then an aggravated battery to a police officer for resisting the arrest. So here's Anthony, okay, you know, and I'm sure he broke the law and had some issues here, but is he public enemy number one? At this time, we didn't have any kind of CIT, crisis intervention trained police officers. We didn't have any kind of court diversion programs, anything like that. So. He went to uh, Illinois Department of Corrections, and that's, you know, that's the last I ever heard of him. So, I mean, you can see right there, like, that system in general is broken, and that, you know, has kind of followed me throughout my path, and when we talk a little bit about pads, so... As moving through my career, I continued then to uh, get my master's. So I got my master's while I was case manager, ended up uh, getting that certification as a certified alcohol and drug counselor, did like some DUI counseling and that sort of stuff, and eventually became the executive director of PADS prior to uh, when it merged with Pioneer Center. So I spent several years in that role, and that was really my kind of big introduction, I'd say, to public policy and social policy. So now, as an executive director of the agency that's working directly with individuals that are homeless. We had th about three to 400 people a year coming through there at the time. I'm at the table with law enforcement agencies, the county board, we're talking about housing and homeless policies, we're talking about transportation policies, we're talking about panhandling on the Woodstock Square and how we can stop that. Do we have to reroute the pace bus, you know? So that was really like my first introduction into bigger picture county public policy, but at the same time started to get involved with some of the state level work that was going on around homelessness and joined some boards of directors and that sort of stuff really so I could learn from others. And so I think, you know, that was key throughout my career progression too, was joining boards of directors and looking for community opportunities that nobody necessarily tells you to do. While I was the director of PADS, I became a board member of the, the local housing authority, which provided funds for Section 8 and other housing programs, was on the board of consumer credit counseling services, and those were just 
invaluable experiences in that I also at that time really started to learn about, like I said, leadership and things like Robert's rules and how the boards function. And these are skills that, you know, you don't really get in the classroom setting or in other settings unless you really go out in the world and put yourself in the middle of these situations. So other things I did is I went through the Crystal Lake Chamber at that time, had like a young leaders program and that was business leaders and people throughout the community. So had the opportunity to do some kind of formal leadership training and stuff. So, you know, I tell people when we talk about my career, I took advantage of these things and actually was proactive in, in trying to find situations that would further my growth along my career. So those things were key to kind of leading me to the next path, which was then uh, working directly here in Woodstock for the 22nd Judicial Circuit. So after I was with PADS for several years as the executive director, the courts finally started talking about developing uh, problem-solving courts, which are your mental health courts, drug courts, those kind of programs. And uh, they didn't have anybody that they felt at the time was there that could put all that stuff together. So I was asked if I'd be interested in coming to work for the judicial branch and said, sure. You know, it'd be nice to then leave non-for-profit and get into the local government setting. So I started working here at the 22nd Circuit and was tasked with developing the drug court program, the mental health court program. We put together a domestic violence court program. So, you know, that took literally meetings with all of the players for probably almost two years before we were up and running. So we were meeting almost weekly with the judges, the state's attorney's office, the public defender's office, the bar association, law enforcement. So again, looking at public policy and how we put all this stuff together, we were doing that within also the framework of state statute. There's a, a state drug court statute and mental health court statute which defines kind of who's eligible for those types of programs, what resources they have to have, that sort of stuff. So. So that was you know, a big impact, not only for me, kind of spreading and learning more from the nonprofit world now, but more about government and local government. And we also had to work with the county board for funding. We had to work with the state for specific funding. So um, through all that, again, you know, look for opportunities to kind of lead. And you've probably heard of Leadership Greater McHenry County. I was able to go through that program again and kind of, you know, gain some formal leadership skills, meet leaders throughout McHenry. But also at a state level, we had a mental health court association and a drug court association. And at the time, I was on both boards. I was president of one and vice president of the other. And a few of us were, and we said, why do we have two boards? Let's merge these and become one. So we merged them into one board and then started a conference that was attracting about five to 600 people a year from around the state of Illinois. So, you know, I just, throughout all of these things, like put myself in the middle of situations where I said, if I want to further my career and and build leadership skills, both formally and kind of informally, you have to put yourself in the middle of where you see yourself wanting to be at some point in time. And there's no other way, I think, to learn all that than just to do it. And you'll see, you know, it, it doesn't take much more than like raising your hand and volunteering yourself to do this stuff, to, to get yourself in these positions. You know, there's a lot of people that want to do it, but don't, but you really just have to do it and then kind of learn on the fly. So I think, you know, that, opportunity was key for me to continue to grow. So it was really through all that that, um, that the mental health board position became something that I thought that I would be interested here in the county. So uh, after about seven years with the 22nd Circuit, the local mental health board, which is again, 
it's a, an executive branch local government agency, but it's governed and guided by statute, which uh, is there to plan, fund, and evaluate a local system for mental health substance use and developmental disability services. But what it also does is it allocates and uh, essentially controls about $13 million or so of local funds every year to create those systems. So. Um, they had been through like two years of interim leadership and that sort of stuff and at some point I just said you know I feel like I can do this now that I've you know had all these other experiences so uh, interviewed they went through all that process and ended up in in that role which you know so now having this opportunity to kind of shape policy and actually use some of the funds for some of the gaps and services and that sort of stuff that I had seen over the previous you know, 10 to 12 years in my career was really kind of that progression of seeing, all right, what the needs were from kind of that real ground level of providing the service then to saying, all right, now I actually have some dollars that I can, you know, use to put to use here. So, so that was probably, I would say, the most challenging stop, which you would know <laughs> because you are on the board. But uh, the mental health board in general is, uh, you have nine board members that are appointed by the county board. So it's essentially like an elected body because you, you don't have control over who's on your board. You just work with whoever it is that uh, is appointed. And you know some are there for right reasons, some are there for their own personal reasons, some are there for political reasons, that kind of stuff. So you really have to be able to work with uh, you know, multifaceted people, diverse attitudes, diverse ideas coming from all over and, and really coalesce around some key strategies and try to gain consensus and shared, shared vision and that sort of stuff with the limited dollars that you have available because you're looking at it and there's always, we were just talking, always going to be more money that's needed than available. So it really is a tough job to, to whittle that down and say, all right, what do we need and how can we use these dollars to make the biggest impact? So in those roles, we've really worked hard to, and, and you mentioned the shelter. So one of the, the real big programs that we knew there was a need for was a year-round stable site homeless shelter. We had the system where it wasn't very conducive to somebody that had to work or try to get out of homelessness when you were sleeping on a basement floor in a church in Wonder Lake on Tuesday night and going to carry to sleep on a basement floor on Wednesday night and you know so on and so forth so this was the system that was in place you know because I mean churches and volunteers it was a huge network of people but it wasn't really the best model to help somebody get out of homelessness and stabilize so please and yeah Aren't all the, weren't all the pads structured that way from county to county? They were, that yeah, there the were, right? absolutely, yeah, because all the pads programs started as uh, faith-based organizations, yeah. you know, so they were all kind of volunteer and, and church-driven at the time. Yeah. Lake County did the same. Elgin, too, and then Elgin ended up building a year-round single-site shelter, too, so after some years of kind of learning that this is great and you know those were really there in the the philosophy was survival right they were there just to provide food shelter they really asked no questions which is all great but it wasn't you know really an opportunity that was going to say all right is somebody struggling with mental health and substance use and how are we going to stabilize them get them into housing get them employment it was all about kind of survival for the most part so so we wanted to build off that and say how do we take that one step further and create a program that can offer more case management services, more stability to individuals, more transportation? So 
the funding model that came together ended up being kind of a public-private approach where some of the churches put some of the dollars that they had into this, but then we were also able to use some of the mental health board dollars, and then the county knew that this was a, you know, a bigger issue than just the mental health board and the faith community's problem to solve, so the county put some money so, you know, all in all, it was about, I think, $1.2 million that came together to build out the space that became the year-round shelter that PADS is now in. So, um, at the time, it was, it was Pioneer Center partnered up with the chapel as the local church that's uh, actually housing that in its space. So, it's, it's not the chapel's program, but they had something like 70,000 square foot of, of unused space or something, and they were willing to allow Pioneer or the county, whoever wanted to do it, to build it out into a homeless shelter, and they signed an agreement that said they would use it as a shelter for, I think, you know, 17 years or something before they would ever consider selling the building. And so we kind of, you know, covered all our bases to make sure it wasn't going to be, you know, kind of futile, and we funded and built something, and it was gone a year later. So, so but at the same time, it was interesting in that, so when Pioneer Center years ago merged with the PADS program, there was a building out on Kishwaukee Valley Road and it was what was the PADS Day Center and there was an old transitional which was like a hundred year old hunting shelter out there. Yeah, and it's on five acres and it was really a nice piece of property but so Pioneer owned that and they didn't want to really deal with it anymore. It was kind of getting old and beat up so we brokered a deal where we brought in a third party and it was an agency called New Directions and we said with the Pioneer that if they sold that facility to new directions then we'll add more money over here to build the shelter so really out of the two things we were able to build a 35 bed sober living home at the old pad site on Kishwaukee Valley then and the, the homeless shelter so it ended up being two things that we knew were really needed in the community so it all worked out you know well I said I don't know after I left we built them I don't know how they're operated but you know I, I hear they're all doing pretty well so Absolutely. Yeah, those guys really, I mean, didn't talk about public policy again. I mean, we had to shape some of the, the policies at the county board about housing because New Directions had come to the mental health board at the time and they wanted to purchase a home and turn it into a sober living home and it was right in, uh, you know, kind of downtown Crystal Lake area, which there were no ordinance against doing it or anything like that, but I had a boardroom of, you know, 100 plus people that were not very happy about that. and. You know, but there was nothing that could be done to tell them no. I mean, we could have not given them money, but our purpose was to build programs to help people stabilize from substance use. So it was interesting that then, you know, out of that spurred like a whole movement to reshape some of the county ordinances around housing and uh, group homes, sober living homes, that sort of stuff. So it really was a kind of an unexpected, you know, I guess ripple effect from all that stuff. But you know, it, it's all there for public safety reasons. There are a lot of reasons that those types of facilities are pretty heavily regulated because some of them aren't, you know, always run with the best intent and that sort of stuff. So I can understand that situation. But that was really a unique uh, opportunity to kind of partner all these groups together to meet some community needs. And then the other thing that we were able to accomplish was this was kind of on the verge of all of this talk about kind of law enforcement and mental health responses and how how are law enforcement trained to deal with individuals that are in mental health crisis should they have to deal with it so we developed the 
countywide uh, social work program under the McHenry County Sheriff's Office. And this came from actually at the time I just approached Sheriff Prim and they didn't have a social worker at the sheriff. There was one social worker in McHenry County in a police station for about 30 years, Sue Blushman out of Lake in the Hills was the only one. And we've got like 26 municipal police departments in McHenry County. So, you know, we've said to the sheriff, hey, if mental health board's willing to fund this program for a couple of years, if you find a value, will you take on the funding, you know, by attrition and approach the county board? And so we did that, paid for a single person there for a couple of years, and they found immense value in how that position was able to help them you know, out on certain calls, it was able to help with staff wellness, it just really was a dynamic role and that grew into this model of we know all 26 police departments are never gonna be able to have the money to develop their own police uh, social worker, nor do they all need a full-time one. You've got, you know, police agencies in McHenry County, like out in Hebron, which is like two police officers and that kind of stuff. So, you know, so this program now, it's I think up to maybe like six social workers and they all have a part of the county that they cover. But the funding model again was like a third mental health board funds, a third county funds, and then all the police departments that wanted to buy in the service were able to kind of buy in contractually. So it was a shared cost approach, which made sense at the time. And, and I hear that's been, really pretty successful. So although they're asking for more money, they may want to grow, but I've heard that's been a successful program, but that's really a, you know, a model that we're seeing around, not just the state, but around the country right now, just this growing, uh, you know, the sentiment that was around law enforcement and how they're able to, to work with individuals in crisis. And I mean, from Illinois to California, we're seeing new teams pop up with the law enforcement and trying to divert the law enforcement from having to even respond to these kind of crisis calls. And so that's part of, of 988. And then there's legislation that's in Illinois called CESA. It's the uh, Community Emergency Services and Support Act, which is supposed to marry 911 and 988 at some point and allow those dispatchers to send out mobile crisis mental health response teams instead of law enforcement at some point. But as you can imagine, to get there, you've got a lot of hands in the pot. And I think Illinois is broken up into like 11 different regions where they have teams of law enforcement, the 911 operators, the behavioral health providers, and they're trying to, you know, come with a shared idea of policy procedure, all that. So effective date of implementation was just moved back to July of 2024, but there's a team that's headed up through the Department of Human Services that we're part of at the courts too, constantly working on all that. So it's a pretty, uh, you know, newish model, but it's starting to spread around the country. So, so through all that really, you know, again, at Mental Health Board, the theme of all this is the other thing I did when I was there, I said, okay, sure, there's a, uh, state association of all the community mental health authorities. So there are about, I don't know, 40 mental health boards throughout Illinois collectively. It was about $140 million that they were using to kind of prop up the state behavioral health system. So uh, I became the president of that association and then started really sitting at the tables with uh, HFS, DHS, you know, all the major players in the state. So we were, you know, kind of using those local taxpayer funds and a mental health board to shape some of how the state was using funds that were coming in through the federal government and then the state taxes. So it was really, you know, again, moving from that really local level to county level, then to the state level. 
and at that same time was really kind of when all this behavioral health court stuff was really starting to gain momentum around the country and the uh, there's a group that's called the Conference of Chief Justices and State Court Administrators. So it's the chief judge of the Supreme Court of all 50 states, and then there's a state court administrator. And that group developed a task force, and they looked for like three years at how courts could improve our roles in how we're working with, again, the 70% of people walking in the door that have a mental health or substance use disorder. If that was, you know, 70% of anyone else's consumer population, you'd actively adapt to do what you can to help them. So the premise of all that was how can courts do better and out of that came an Illinois task force and as the uh, president of all the mental health boards, I sat on that task force and the chief justice at the time said, you know, we don't really know what the hell we're doing. You guys probably know more than we do about all this stuff. And she said, Scott, do you wanna come work for the, us at the Supreme Court and just do this. <laughs> so they had kind of a job description and just then kind of, you know, said, here's some of the work we need you to do, but, you know, we need you to represent us at all these tables. So, you know, I ended up moving over to that role for, so all, you know, my years of service at the county went over to, you know, part of the state system and all that stuff. And, and one of the first things I had to do was just kind of reestablish this role because the Supreme Court had never had a role like this and there were only three other states that had somebody in this position at the time. So we had kind of the momentum of this national task force behind us to you know, use some of their recommendations and one of their recommendations was that all courts should have somebody that's kind of a point person for all things behavioral health. So we played off that a little bit and then started to look at uh, how, how do we start to integrate court into the table of some of the funding and some of the other things that are happening around the state. So that put me in, again, to represent the court on things like there's the state opioid remediation funds. So I sit on that state board, I sit on like the 988 SESA board and bring the court's voice to all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, I'm able to kind of advocate on our behalf, but then also bring information back and forth and kind of bridge that gap between behavioral health systems and the court system. So that part of it's really unique, but then other things I get to do in my role are really, you know, kind of court level technical assistance, assisting different courts. We have 25 circuit courts around Illinois and they all have various types of diversion programs and mental health drug court programs. So I get to assist those with kind of developing some of that stuff, but then also oversee, we've got 120 drug courts and mental health courts and we have a certification process. So we oversee all the certification standards and make sure that those uh, programs are operating kind of with fidelity to the national models and the evidence-based practice. So it's really been a two-year really dynamic role in that, you know, you're doing something different all the time. Sometimes you're working at the state level policy, um, sitting on a couple national boards too with uh, funders like SAMHSA and groups like the National Center for State Courts. So you get kind of this look from national, state, local, you know, and then kind of hyper-local when communities are doing all this kind of work. So it's really been, you know, I guess when I talk to anybody about my career path and journey, you see how everything kind of progressed a little bit. But what I did at each stop along the way was kind of just stuck myself in the middle of the things that were going on and said, all right, well, you know, raise your hand and do it, you know, and then you, I mean, once you're around the stuff that you want to continue to do, obviously you network, you meet people and you start to learn more about how all these systems interact. 
and how they work together and you can use all those experiences to kind of shape where things are headed so so that's kind of where I am today some of the work that we're really doing that's very substantive is uh, in the reform of our fitness to stand trial systems so this is you know one of the ways that courts really have you know, pretty deep interaction with somebody that's really seriously mentally ill so this again is somebody that is arrested on a criminal charge and they're deemed what's called unfit to stand trial the state or defense can say that i don't know that my you know my client can help himself here during the trial process because he's so impaired due to the mental illness and then there's a process where a psychologist does an evaluation they submit that to the court the court has a hearing and they determine if somebody's fit or unfit if they're determined fit then the case proceeds as it would in a normal kind of criminal court setting but if an individual is found unfit then what happens is they're detained in the local jail until there's a spot in one of the DHS hospitals in the state and then they're transferred into that hospital for what are called fitness restoration services which really you know are kind of teaching them the different players in the courtroom and the court process it's not you know contrary to many people's belief really mental health treatment you, you get some medication but you're not really doing treatment you're really more just kind of educating about the court process so but what happens there is we've got a roughly 1,100 beds in the DHS facilities in Illinois. So there's seven hospitals that they run. At one point in time, this was you know years and years ago after you know deinstitutionalization, deinstitutionalization time. There were like 30,000 beds in hospitals, and you know not that that's the right model, but that was whittled down over the years to 1,100 beds. So you know what happens here is there are extreme wait lists, and I mentioned the guy that was in uh, DHS in in jails for a year waiting this process out because what happens is. You can sit in a local jail and DHS has a minimum of a, at least 90 days that somebody waits right now until they're transferred into one of their state hospitals. So that's just somebody sitting in McHenry County Jail right now, severely mentally ill with maybe, you know, some formulary medication that they get, but there's zero treatment happening, zero anything. And you have to ask, you know, how humane that is and in what kind of policies we can re reshape to do better in that process. So. We've got uh, an entire committee that's made up of judges, social workers, you name it, that's reviewing all this stuff because it's all written into state statute and we're trying to revise what's called Article 104, which is the statute which governs how all this stuff happens. In some states, there's actually been legislation passed where if you are arrested on a misdemeanor charge and you're unfit, then you just automatically go into treatment and there's no criminal proceedings anymore. You know, and that's been kind of radical for Illinois to, to want to approach yet. But, you know, that's kind of where things are headed because the other part of this is it's extremely expensive, obviously, for a jail to house somebody like this. And a lot of the time then there might be new charges even picked up on somebody that's in custody because of the, you know, the mental health issues and symptoms that they're experiencing. And then on the other end, once they go into custody of DHS, that process takes a while and it's really expensive again as it's an institution and they come back and they really didn't get any treatment all they did was learn that you're the prosecutor you're the judge and you're the you know the defense attorney so we just wasted a, a year's worth of time and about forty thousand dollars on somebody really to just adjudicate the case they're left no better off than they were before 
and somebody on a misdemeanor, the law actually states that you can't be held in custody longer than what you would be sentenced to. So I, I, most of these low-level misdemeanors carry a sentence of like one year. So this guy I talked about with the banana did this process for one year, and then the one-year date came up, and they said, well, we have to dismiss the charge now. So a year went by, and absolutely nothing happened. And, and this happens like every day all around the state, you know? So this is part of what we're looking to reform right now. Uh, again, a lot of states are dealing with this now too. We're, you know, when I say Illinois has got a, you know, backlog, I think we've got about 250 people sitting in local jails right now waiting to be transferred into DHS custody at some point. There are states that have thousands, you know, so we're, I mean, it sounds terrible, but we're nowhere near the worst in the country with all this, but, so it's kind of a national crisis around that that's gonna take some major policy shifts and shifts in how we use uh, resources and that sort of stuff. So that's really, you know, kind of a lot of the work that I'm involved in right now. And then the, the other piece that, that plays in all this, and, you know, primarily I've talked about the civil avenues or the, the criminal avenues to mental health care the Illinois Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Code has, uh, is what governs the involuntary in, inpatient and involuntary outpatient commitment process. And I talk to people that have been in the field for 20 years that don't even know that we have an involuntary outpatient commitment statute. And, and these are lawyers, social workers, you name it. And you know, if we were using that more effectively, it would alleviate some of the pressure on some of those state hospital systems. Not everybody has to be in a level of care that requires you know, an institutionalization there. They can be living in the community if they have a stable place to live and still not be a public threat. And so we're trying to educate, again, prosecutors, social workers, mental health providers that this is an avenue there. I mean, there's no one panacea that's gonna, you know, fix all this stuff. It's a bunch of these things all happening kind of concurrently that we need to make sure that we're using to our full kind of advantage. So we're doing a lot of work around kind of the civil mental health systems right now too. So so it's exciting in that, you know, it's just a, a lot of work that gets done behind the scenes. Most people wouldn't even think all this stuff is going on nor really care about it unless you really, you know, put yourself in the middle of all these things. But once you're in it, you see the impact it has on you know, people's lives, communities, you name it. So there's an argument or a, you know, a conversation to be had about anything. If you like the, you know, the humanistic approach, you can talk about how this stuff is, you know, inhumane and how are we treating people this way in this point in time and, you know, the, the wealthiest country that's ever, you know, been on the earth yet. And then there's, you know, the other piece of it is cost. You can show cost benefit to treatment in the community versus treatment in, you know, institutions and that sort of stuff. So there's really a case to be made. And, and I know we talked a little bit about how you use this information to, you know, develop these shared visions and kind of have people that have to, you know, everybody's got to give a little when you're at the table, you know, law enforcement might not want this. And you're talking about, you know, moving people out of jails and the communities, there's unions involved and corrections workers that could lose jobs. I mean, so there's all these bits and pieces of all this stuff that have to come together. So you have to, you know, kind of use the, I tried to take the most practical approach to all this stuff. And you know, get everybody to kind of coalesce around how this is gonna be better for, you know, the community and, you know, kind of the big picture in the long run, but it's not gonna be the best thing for everybody that, you know, could have some kind of residual impact from all this. So I think those are some of the toughest things you deal with in, in kind of public policy work and in the community is just, you know, differing 
differing levels of need, different uh, opinions, people coming after all these uh, situations from a totally different perspective and point of view, and then trying to gain some kind of common you know, direction there. And that's really easier said than done, which you know, you just talked about funding at the mental health board. And when you've got nine people there with nine different experiences and ideas, not easy. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'd love to, you know, answer questions or just kind of hear, you know, thoughts about all this kind of stuff. But in general, you know, I wanted to talk, I said, just kind of hear the career path and journey. People say, oh, you're so lucky to be there, which, yeah, you're lucky to be in the role. But, you know, again, this was a lot of going to, to sit at meetings I didn't have to be at and raising my hand to be involved in things that nobody told me to be in. And, you know, a lot of the continued education and picking up new credentials and all that kind of stuff along the way. So that's where I say, you know, you got to kind of look where you want to go and, and stick yourself in the best positions to get there. So, you know, and, and then things happen and doors open along the way and it's up to you to take advantage of those when they you know are presented but yeah i think that that's kind of how i got here of being a little crystal lake guy Still here too. <laughs> yep which is fantastic i didn't have to move either so <laughs> Springfield. Mm -hmm. i have two questions sure Uh, yes, through IODAPCA, which is the Illinois Credentialing Board now, they also have a credential, it's called the CCJP, it's a Certification in uh, Criminal Justice Addictions. Well, so, it just kind of adds a couple more classes on about learning about the justice system and how it works. You know, I talked to you again, um, you probably all know about the big movement now to incorporate more peer support in all the work. So there's certified peer recovery specialists, certified peer support specialists. And, you know, we're talking about the difference between probation and parole. Does everybody know the difference between those things? Right? I mean, so, right, probation is coming out of a county, you know, county jail situation. Parole is coming out of a state department, the Department of Corrections. And, you know, stuff like that is what it teaches you because if you want to have some credibility at the table here, you have to be able to kind of know the systems and language. So it just gives you kind of that. But it also goes into some of the risk factors along people that have, you know, risk need levels in the justice setting is what we work off of. And you look at, somebody's risk to reoffend, and you start to look at all those social determinants of health. Do they have stable housing? Do they have criminal associations? What was their first age of use, first you know, age that they were starting to get in trouble? So teaches you how to assess risk and then kind of some of the language around all those systems. Okay. And that's a, yeah, CCJP is what it is. Okay, uh, I'm a addictions counselor at Rosecrans, and I cool. work with the nice. co-occurrence, so I deal mm -hmm. with a lot of Yeah, no, I, I believe it would help, you know, especially if you want to continue kind of working with that justice-involved population. It'll open up different doors. It's not a real popular credential around Illinois. So, and now I say, you know, with the 20 years I've been around all this stuff, all this opportunity with these, you know, police diversion programs and all that, I mean, it's just getting bigger and bigger. So I always advocate for building more credentials and education and building on what you're currently doing. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. On the when you go on there and look, you know, on all the 
paperwork, there'll be another application. And I think if you already have a CADC, you might just have to take a class or two, go take a test and have another credential. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Do you ever think about Anthony and what his outcome would have been like if he was supported by the programs and the policies you put in place now? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I mean, it's interesting that just, I was young at the time, I guess, so I didn't know really how to advocate well for him. And at the time, there was no, like I said, no diversion opportunity. But he is, I mean, like to the T, the, the when they give you like a risk profile of somebody that's like the perfect mental health or drug court client, it's him. He had all of the, you know, previous arrests. He had substance use, mental health, you know, homelessness. He would have been perfect for that. And, you know, had that program been there and been available to him, you know, there's no guarantee that it would have, you know, led to positive outcomes, but he would have had that chance where he would have had, you know, not gone to the Department of Correction, have case management, treatment, intensive oversight. So, you know, totally could have taken his life in a different direction, you know, which is a shame. So, you know, a little late, but now people have that chance. Do you know any stats on the drug court success rate of folks that are past, folks that are going through the system and graduating drug court? Absolutely, yeah, there, I mean, so drug courts in general, drug courts been around 30, I think almost 35 years now. They're like one of the most researched criminal justice programs out there in the diversion realm because it's, you know, there are individuals that are headed to the Department of Correction that will be letting, you know, letting back out into the community. So there's been a lot of time researching and I think the latest stuff that I'd seen, it was like 60% of the people that go through, they, you know, they don't reoffend. they follow them for like seven years. I think it's at a seven year mark, it was like 60% of graduates do not reoffend. And then when you look at though, like just going to Department of Corrections and coming out, the rates of reoffense are like 75%, I think is last 77. So, you know, so 60% of drug court graduates don't reoffend. And then 77%, I believe, of people coming out of Department of Corrections do reoffend. So, you know, you look at again, public safety issues, reducing the costs of, you know, reincarceration, rearrest, all that stuff, and a million policy cases you could make for the benefits of those programs. And some are more successful than others. You know, McHenry County actually has a real solid program that's followed like the really prescriptive model that the, you know, the researchers have put together. And then you've got some where maybe they have less resources down, you know, like middle and southern Illinois and that kind of stuff. But it's roughly in like that 60% range. And is there any program for those folks that have been studied for seven years to bring them back as support counselors and or mentors to others that are Sure. There are mentor programs in there. Uh, veterans courts do it, drug courts do. It's tough though to keep somebody engaged. You know, that's what we tried when I was even here in McHenry County to develop like a, a you know, a mentor program and even a, like an alumni group. And what you found was once somebody was gone and they were disengaged and off living your life, they didn't really want to come back and hang around us and be around the court anymore or anything, you know? So it was kind of like, all right, we got it. I'm moving on with life, you know? So they've been proven, I mean, same, kind of elements and peer support as somebody that's been there, done that, you know, they can assist, but it's just hard to keep them engaged and keep them coming back long-term. So a lot of problems, a lot of programs really struggle with that. Right. Veterans courts have actually a better uh, retention rate of mentors and alumni groups and stuff just because veterans are a closer knit group and everything, but most drug courts really struggle. Right. Yeah. Anthony, did you 
So that's, uh, yeah, I, good question. <laughs> but policy, local, local dollars is what that is. So in a local jail, all that's driven by uh, county boards and how much money they're willing to allocate to the jail. So um, there's a state law, it's Article 77, I think, and it, it dictates like the minimum level of health care service that has to be provided in a jail setting. And a lot of jails provide exactly that, the, the minimal level of health care that they're required to provide by law. And to provide these other treatment services, there would have to be dollars allocated directly through uh, county boards to bring in treatment professionals. And it's really just a cost, cost thing. Yeah, because it's some yeah. mental illnesses that are left untreated get more severe and more difficult to treat. Absolutely. No, I mean, you're preaching to the choir, right? We're all trying to say that too. I mean, and it just becomes the, the readmission rates, rearrest rates, and you add up the costs, but you know, just on the front end, so people haven't. Are there some economics that can be put to that to change local boards? Absolutely. To be worth doing? Yeah, there's, I mean, there are studies, research, a lot of that, but I think what comes into play, like I said, is you walk in there and then there's special interests and there's other stuff. And so, you know, if there's less people in jail, that means again, less, jail jobs, less this, less that. There's, I think, you know, bigger kind of, you know, policy issues that go into play with all that kind of stuff, unfortunately. And some communities are, are, you know, really doing some cool stuff. Some are kind of doing the bare minimum. So it's local tone, I think, is a lot of it too. Local leadership and it's a struggle. So government wants to be self-sustaining. I believe at some level, there's a little bit of that element in there. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Change article <laughs> <laughs> yep. Absolutely. But it is, yeah, I mean, there is a minimum level of health care services. And I mean, so even Kane County is doing some really amazing stuff. Their sheriff over there has developed some new uh, substance use programs there. And, you know, there was talk here actually when I was at Mental Health Board, this was interesting that the, uh, the McHenry County Jail used to have an ICE contract. They had the immigration contract there, and then there was state law. and county board fought over it for two years and they ended up getting rid of that contract which opened up like a whole wing in the jail that's just sitting there empty that was used for uh, housing ICE uh, detainees at the time. So, but then the argument, you know, kind of became if we were gonna use that to do, you know, substance use treatment, you know, did they wanna bring in, there was talk of bringing in people from the outside for treatment. I said, you can't have a treatment program in a jail. I mean, it just reinforces the stigma so they didn't want to do it for only the inmates because they didn't think, right, yeah, they didn't think they had enough to make it worth their while. So it was this discussion about bringing in external. Right, I know it, yeah. No, it is, yeah, this is the stuff that gets really frustrating when you're in the middle of it all and see it all. My brother actually works at Dixon Prison as a, a case works, a supervisor of a, a mental health unit and, you can only imagine at the state level what a mess that is. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the common sense approach would tell you that this is cheaper, it's more humane, it's more of all of the positive things we can say, but why aren't we doing it? And then you can come up with a million reasons why somebody won't do it, There's unfortunately. Good ones in Boulder County Jail has a tremendous sure. treatment program within the county jail. Yeah. Yeah, they're a big leader, Colorado area boulders in uh, a lot of the law enforcement diversion stuff. Arizona's doing some pretty amazing things. I mean, in Illinois, believe it or not, I mean, we're leading away with some of the stuff. This uh, latest thing that I was involved in, you probably have all heard about the, you know, the fear around the Pretrial Fairness Act and the elimination of cash bond. We're the first state to do that across the board, and we're, what, a week into it now. But 
so we spent a lot of time on the front end going around the state making sure that all these pretrial uh, departments had relationships with their local behavioral health providers and kind of mapping out the areas where they had no behavioral health services and tried to fill the void by then advocating with DHS to have programs expand into certain you know, desert areas and all that. And probably the biggest challenge to all this stuff right now is workforce, you know, so that's really a big issue is there just aren't enough behavioral health clinicians and, and mental health professionals out there to fill the gaps in some of these places. And I just had this discussion with the, the director of, of the Division of Mental Health for Illinois, Dr. Albert, was at one of our judges meetings and he was saying, oh, it's not a money issue. And, you know, I think one of the judges said, yeah, it is if you paid people enough to want to work for you, then, you know, so don't tell us you've got money, you just can't hire people if you paid them to want to work for you and you then retained them. It is a money issue, you know, so. Because it's actually, I mean, there's probably more money invested into behavioral health in Illinois right now than there's ever been. I think last year's budget had the highest amount of money allocated to behavioral health services ever in the, you know, the history of the state budget, but, you know, it's how it's spent and are there enough people to spend it. So what's the behind-the-scenes story on, um, there was a problem in Woodstock Yeah, so the business owners, you know, again, small oh, business owners that are on the Woodstock <laughs> Square got together and approached the county board and, and said that they wanted the pace bus route changed because they didn't want people on the square because they said it was impacting local business. So, again, that's the power of lobbying Just groups. Just changing the bus route changed the place where they're hanging out. Right. That work. Just understand. dropping them off at a different location, making it somebody else's quote-unquote problem. The services that were given at the fire, old fire station were yeah. removed out to... They were, yeah, offered at the new pad site out in McHenry. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. closed down the fire station? Then? They did, yeah. So it wasn't just changing the bus route. Right, yeah, and then the it was service. moving that out of there. I mean, so that was... And the reason that spot in McHenry was somewhat palatable to the people that, you know, had to approve some stuff was because where it is. Town. Yeah. <laughs> it's not <laughs> ideal by any means, but mm -hmm. it was part of the game to get it done. So how many rooms mm -hmm. are there for homeless people at the um, old Pioneer building? Uh, the, the shelter has 70, the new one off uh, Route 31 there in McHenry, so that's the shelter. And then the one that they had out on Kishwaukee Valley that's now New Directions, that's their sober living home. I think they've got 35 beds out there now. Okay, but there was the building that was a big building for Mm -hmm. bankrupt, and now you're saying that's the no, that's actually, no, that building's totally, I could go for hours about that one, but yeah, that was a, a building that was originally family service, and then uh, Rosecrans was in there at one point, and Pioneer, and then Pioneer moved out of there, now I think Alexander Lee Center for Autism is actually who's in that building. Oh, that's not the Pads? No, no, Pads is across the street by the Waste Management uh, Building, the chapel is the church that's across the street, and it's like a long, deep property and the, the homeless shelter is kind of on the back end of it. But yeah, that big building that you... Yeah, the big building you're talking about was an albatross to like three agencies that took on too much. <laughs> so, But yeah, I, from what I've heard, Alexander Lee's there and 
So that's a school for uh, young, I think, young kids that have been diagnosed with autism. So they have some state funds and they take kids from around the area. No, it's a, just a day day school. Yep. 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 So social service is a strong, you know, advocating body, and I think it's just organizing well. And, and you know, what I have found in working with the courts, so kind of in, you know, this executive and judicial branch, that there's, you know, say I'm one of them too, a lot of touchy feeliness in, the, you know, in the social service realm. You can't walk into the room full of politicians and people that control the money and say we need this because it, you know, because it's a mental health crisis, because people are struggling. You got to make the right case, you know, and I think a lot of times social service people don't do that effectively. So I think that's a piece of it. But there are plenty of groups to. You know, from a social work perspective, there are a couple of state associations like SEBA is the Community Behavioral Health Association of Illinois. Uh, IABH is the other big one, big trade association you can get involved in, and that's what those guys do is, you know, they lobby with the, the legislators and that sort of stuff and try to change and, you know, work with the governor on the budget and all that kind of stuff. So there are big kind of advocacy and lobbyist groups, and most of those are membership-based, so there are opportunities to get involved in those. Yeah. Do you have inter internship opportunities for agency right now? We don't yet, but I'm hoping to build something. Yeah, because there's well, we just me right now. <laughs> right, yeah, totally, right, I know, right, yeah. This, I don't yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of them in, uh, you know, local counties and stuff, but nothing right now with us at the state, state government, at state court. Sure. But I remember, like, the, when you were talking to us about like problems solving courts and drug court, mental health court, that was like the first time that I ever heard of it, and it just blew my mind that this was a thing. But um, I'm wondering, like, as far as like employment opportunities or even like volunteering opportunities, does that like exist in the close courts for social workers or not? Like, at usually they're like your situation where you're working for an agency that's providing the treatment for them. So McHenry County was set up a bit differently than most of the others in that they have uh, a couple of treatment professionals working directly for the court that do all the assessments and case management. Most other courts just work with a community mental health center to do all that kind of stuff. So there's not as much opportunity directly in that realm, but the probation world, there's constant opportunity. I mean, that's really, probation has taken a big turn over the last several years to become more of just a, you know, compliance monitoring to really becoming agents of change and trying to help people. So there's you know, a lot of opportunity there, but drug court world, I would say, is probably not as, not as prevalent of the opportunity just because they're smaller and, you know, they're kind of still boutique, specially, special kind of programs, you know? Yeah, and typically those programs use multiple providers. You know, some people in the program are getting services at Rosecrans, some are at Pioneer, some here, there, you know, but when to 
the clinicians, I think there's two of them that work directly for the court and they do yeah. like a lot of the, you know, the case management work there and a lot of the initial assessments. So different models really in all the different counties that have them. Sure, absolutely, yeah, veterans court. So really came out of drug courts and mental health courts, same model, you know, so there are, um, Illinois, I think we've got maybe 17 veterans courts set up right now. Yeah, McHenry County doesn't have one specific, but they have like a track built into their mental health court, but same principles and ideas. It's identifying a veteran early in the process and, you know, saying, all right, instead of having you go through this kind of you know, traditional civil or, or sorry, criminal process will divert you into this program, help with treatment, help file for benefits, help with housing, all that. So it really, and then usually at the end of it, if somebody follows through with all of those uh, requirements, there's an opportunity to have the charge either reduced or dismissed. So it's, you know, all these things we call like coerced mandated treatment. It's, you know, the, you know, if you do this, we'll give you that, but it's, you know, follow all these things. And at the end of it, the, you know, the, the little reward is no charge. So then that's really how veterans courts work too, but they usually have uh, one of the VJOs, there's a veterans justice outreach officer assigned to like every region in the state. So they're usually part of the team so they can help people navigate that, you know, vet veterans healthcare system and benefits and all that. And then um, usually there's like an alumni group or something where we talked about that where there's, you know, a veteran mentor or a peer support program attached to those so really like a, a drug court or mental health court just with all vets in there so yeah yeah i think uh lake county's got a real big one the judge that started that program was veteran so he was really into it and so i think around the area winnebago county's got one McHenry. just at the time when i was there we looked at there just was a pretty low census believe it or not of veterans that were within the, the jail or that were being arrested so since then, I think uh, a lot of jails have implemented screening tools where they're identifying people earlier and trying to divert to all these different options. So I don't know where they are now with some of that stuff, but there are a lot of pushes out there to say, see, and, and some of that's not even standardized. Like every jail doesn't even use a screening tool that identifies whether if somebody has a mental health substance use, if you're a veteran, you know, they're just doing these basic intakes. So we're even trying to work on just standardizing some of the, you know, the tools that are out there. There are researched tools for screening for all this stuff. So, you know, another policy <laughs> level change that could be made. But yeah, veterans courts are showing great promise though too. There's a national association uh, of veterans courts. So it does, you know, all the research, same kind of stuff that they do and put out about the, the outcomes of the programs, best practices, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's the, it's under the, the National Association of Drug Courts, which has changed their name, I think, to All Rise. And they have like a whole arm dedicated to veterans courts. So if you go on their website and look, you can find a ton of research and stuff about them too. I think they had a map maybe of where they all are around the state and the country. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. within the prison and jail systems when an adult teen for suicide, they could also be put there. Is that correct? 
They can, yeah. So the, the 1,100 beds that are run under those seven DHS hospitals, they're essentially three populations in there. It's either somebody that's there for fitness restoration services, somebody that's there that's been adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity, and usually they're there for a minimum of five years. And then the third tier is those that are there on a civil inpatient, uh, inpatient commitment. So those are the individuals that go through the process that you probably know you filed a you know, petition, then there's certification, and you have to meet the prongs of harm to self, or, uh, you know, harm to self or others. So those patients can be housed there as, there as well. So it's really those three populations that are in those 1,100 beds, but they transfer people out of those, they kind of triage, it's for those Im imminent issues and then rely back on community-based services. So those hospitals aren't doing any kind of, you know, real long-term care except for those NGRI patients mm -hmm. that are there. That's really it. That's crazy that that's the best Right, absolutely, yeah, for the entire state. Um, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, and so I was just talking with our chief justice the other day, and she, you know, we were checking in. She said, "Is there anything, you know, in the first couple of years that you wish you'd, you're able to do and hadn't been?" I said, "I haven't even like thought about the juvenile system yet, but we've got 16 juvenile detention centers in Illinois, and again, terrible standards, horrible treatment, lack of health care, all the all the stuff that you don't want to hear. But I hear they're they're really I'm bad." Are you Kane? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. The further south you go, I think yeah. the worse they get. <laughs> I hate to say it, but yeah, yeah. So they're actually the state created like an, an ombudsman type uh, oversight program to go in and evaluate all the detention centers now and provide reports back to the counties because they're all county run. So interestingly enough, so McHenry County youth that have to go into a detention center go to Kane because we just contract with them because we don't have one here. And that's really the model throughout most of the state. And, you know, with minimal funds, they provide minimal standards, unfortunately. I worked with a senator that carried that. I was born in Washington. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, I'd love to see those <laughs> be reformed and yeah. have more treatment. <laughs> one of the things we're doing, and you guys may have heard about, is uh, so the staff get limited training there, too, so we're bringing in uh, National Council for Mental Wellbeing to do mental health first aid for youth training in all the 16 detention centers and doing like a train-the-trainer program so at least then people will be able to carry that on. But, you know, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of this really, unfortunately, comes down to psychiatric care, too. So when we look at even those, this will really, you know, make you not want to sleep at night, but those 1,100 beds in the state hospitals, there's probably about 100 to 150 of those that are empty right now while people are waiting in jails to be transferred there because the state can't hire enough psychiatrists to monitor the, monitor the beds safely. So, yeah. So there's a shortage of psychiatrists? Yeah, nationally. I mean, that's not just an Illinois issue, but, I, you know, don't quote me, but the stats are crazy when I looked at them. It's like, I want to say like 80% of psychiatrists are over the age of 65. And then the, there's a very low percentage of new med students going into psychiatry too. So the ones we have are getting older and there's not as many coming. So, yeah. No, no, yeah, psychiatrist is even worse, yeah. Then when you look at like the subspecialties for like child adolescent psychiatrists and stuff, it gets even worse. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's a national issue. I have one question. Um, 
I think a lot of times people have a sense that they're afraid to go into macro because the problems are so big mm -hmm. and so complex and so frustrating and the progress is slow. It sounds like in your description of your career that you've been able to have a lot of successes. And so how do you think about like the pace of change mm -hmm. and your experience of it, how that compares to your um, you know, individual level work that you used to do? Sure, yeah, great question. Which I'd say, you know, it, it, the different the levels of government kind of dictate how fast things can get done too because of who has control of you know policy and, and dollars so at the county level it was much easier to get kind of whole level systems change done because you could go to Woodstock and meet with everybody you needed to in the state you're dealing with a whole new level so you know the successes here where once you were you know kind of in the role you are now on, a, on the board of the mental health board you're really pulling the first strings of some of this stuff so you know, I'd say county level, much easier, even local level, city councils and that kind of stuff. So as you go up, it gets harder, but I think, and then along the way too, you also gotta just take it in stride and celebrate the small victories too, along the way, and not get too beat up about everything, because you're, you're gonna be, there are some things you know that'll never be accomplished and you'll be working toward those forever, but you know, when you get these little things like the, you know, QPR suicide prevention program, you know, that kind of stuff that you see going, like, that's the stuff that keeps you going, and then you just chip away, I think, at the bigger things. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. I have one more question. Yeah. What do you do for self-care? Because it sounds like you do a lot of, like, stressful, like, big stuff, so, yeah. and you're, like, going a lot of places. And in our field, I feel like self-care is a really big thing. So yeah. No, glad you mentioned that, right? Yeah, so actually, funny you say, so when I came on to the AOIC, we started a, a wellness committee, which they never had before, and it was amazing to me. But lawyers, there's huge, it's like, you know, big, big, you know, bad coping mechanisms there, a lot of substance use and whatnot. So, you know, we started to do this, and there's a lot of attention being paid right now to, like, judicial wellness, uh, judicial staff wellness and all that, you know. So we're doing lunch and learns and you know topic presentations about self-care and burnout and all that sort of stuff all the time but you know personally I've got yeah my daughters are 14 and, and 12 and my wife and I we all live here in Crystal Lake we do a lot of just you know kind of hanging around Crystal Lake go out for walks like being in nature got a boat have a pool you know so that kind of stuff just unplugging mm -hmm. I think is probably the challenge I mean we were talking earlier there's I will say it was even probably a tad more stressful when you were here at the county level because you had to be everywhere and it was just, you know, in that sense that there were a lot of eyes on you and you were being watched and judged about everything. Now it's a little more anonymous at the state level, which is okay. But, you know, I think yeah, you, have to, you have to kind of prioritize too. I mean, there was a time where I probably said yes to way too much stuff and overdid it with kind of being on boards and running around going to meetings and you know, I guess you learn that over time a little bit, so. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Okay, so we will yeah. say thank you to Scott. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah.